Patrick Strickland spends a lot of time thinking about borders, and recently, the border between Mexico and the U.S. I had been aware that several groups of militias and border vigilantes were packing up their guns and heading down to the border in Texas and New Mexico and also in Arizona. This was back in 2018, when Donald Trump was still president of the United States. They were heeding Trump's call to arms, so to speak. These vigilante groups had shown up to defend the border before, waging their own war on migration and the people coming north. But one town in Arizona had no interest in watching this unfold on their doorsteps. Again. Patrick spent a year reporting on what happened there and what would happen next. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. This is Patrick. Patrick Strickland. I'm a writer and journalist from Texas. And he used to be my colleague at Al Jazeera. Now, he's the author of The Marauders, standing up to vigilantes in the American borderlands. Tell me how you ended up on the Arizona border writing your latest book, which I have in my hands. It's a great book. Thank you for the kind words. Well, in the lead up to the 2018 midterm elections, then President Trump was really ramping up this talk about the so-called caravan. At this very moment, large organized caravans of migrants are marching toward our southern border. And dubbing it an invasion. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. And pretty much framing it to his base and to people all around the country as some kind of an existential crisis for the country. They have violently overrun the Mexican border. These are tough people. And at that time, I was actually working at Al Jazeera English, and I was in Washington, D.C. at that bureau, reading a lot of local news from different border communities. And I found a local news video from Southern Arizona that showed a lady from Arivaca, Arizona, talking about the militias in their town. Arivaca is a pretty small town, and the woman in the video was talking about militias arming up and heading there. What seemed unusual for Patrick was that Arivaca was trying to stop them. People in that town had put out all these signs that said no militia and militia go home, stuff like that. That really resonated with the type of reporting that I like to do, which is not also about the people trying to push back in some meaningful way. Yeah. So you headed down to this eclectic, dusty border town in Arizona, and... You wrote what amounts to a modern-day Western, but here the issue isn't land or cattle, it's immigration. There's a cantina, there's a gun battle or two, and all of this starts with a local resident who's a bartender and a meat cutter. Tell me about who you met. The book starts with Megan Davern. She was tending bar there, and a group of vigilantes come into the bar, and she's sort of seeing that they have a drone on the table, that some of them have gun holsters on their hips. And the bar had already had a no militia policy from groups that had been there before in the past. 
It's really funny when I interviewed her the first time about that. I said, well, how did you know they weren't hunters? Because one thing I noticed in rural Arizona, everybody's got a gun. And she was like, they weren't hunters. It wasn't hunting season. Mm -hmm. So she sort of asked them, what are you guys doing here in town? And then if I recall correctly, I think what he said was something like, we're saving the children. Patrick says this phrase that sounds well-meaning, saving the children, is an expression that's become linked to the conspiracy movement QAnon and other extreme right-wing groups. And these militias buy in to some of their theories, including that migrants crossing the U.S. border are involved in child sex trafficking and that the town is covering for cartels in the alleged trafficking. So I think people know very well that those kind of accusations can really drive someone to do something really radical and maybe carry out violence. So that was the fear. That's what sort of set the stage. But the roots of it go back for quite some time before that. Something had happened in Erivaca almost a decade earlier that shook the town to its core, Patrick says. But before we get to that, I asked Patrick to explain Erivaca. Describe for me how you felt when you entered the town. It's a very small town. It's actually an unincorporated community. It's about 12 miles from the the U.S.-Mexico border. But if you were crossing that, say, as a migrant by foot, it's very rugged terrain. That would not be a a short journey. So there are the townspeople, the migrants, and the humanitarians helping them. In that sort of part of southern Arizona, it's really common, at least according to several of the humanitarians I spoke to, for people to literally walk through the soles of their shoes because they've walked for such a long time. This was rough country, and not just physically. There were dangers, but there was also something about it, Patrick says. I thought it was a really interesting place. It was very beautiful out there. People are sort of spread out. It's very dispersed. But one estimate I read is that there's about 600 people in and around Arivaca who live there. And my first morning there, I went to a town meeting. And there were something like 70 people at the town meeting, which is a pretty impressive turnout. They were discussing how to push the militia out. Patrick says everyone at the meeting took on a role. One group was suggesting that businesses in the area ban these militias by doing things like putting up a sign at the cantina. They just stepped up for the moment and came together and really organized. And as a border town, there are a lot of things that pass through Arivaca. There were recent reports of fentanyl brought by cartels across the border. And because Arivaca is unincorporated, like Patrick said, there's no formalized local government. There's no police force for the town, amongst other things. Yeah, they have the county sheriff for Pima County, which includes Tucson. That's a really big territory, though. There's basically one road in. And so that brings in all sorts of other issues, you know, a violent incident, let's say. It would take some time for the emergency services to get there. What could take 30 minutes to an hour, depending on where they're coming from. So, yeah, there's no local police force. There is a fire department. It's volunteer. And there is a mayor, but it's an honorary mayor. Which might explain why the community is deciding to take this upon themselves, because who else is going to take it on? 
So take me back to the cantina. Megan is tending bar and in walks, which sounds like the opening of a joke, but we quickly learn it is not a bunch of guys. They walk right past this sign that says they're not welcome. Basically what it says is unwanted, any militias or vigilante groups. Megan didn't know who they were yet, but she knew why groups like them came to Erevaca. This group was called Veterans on Patrol. Veterans on Patrol, and one of those guys was Michael Lewis Arthur Meyer, who sometimes goes by Lewis Arthur, who has also been known <laughs> widely as Screwy Louie. The way Megan told Patrick the story, after hanging out at the bar, the group finished up, paid up, and then went across the street. And then they went outside and were filming the local humanitarian aid office. That's where the volunteers in town operate to go out and help migrants who are crossing and provide medical aid or water or food or whatever they need. We know where all their humanitarian aid is. This is Meyer in the video. And they know that we're down here. There's a lot of them hitting the trails right now, moving their aid. <laughs> we got a couple people helping them. Now, we spent the whole morning hitting certain points. Um, BP did put us on trail of a couple areas. We have uncovered underground mines and tunnels. At the we should be clear, we have no confirmation of what his group was doing that day, apart from filming outside this humanitarian aid office. They were filming and live streaming it online, basically saying, oh, these are child sex traffickers and they're cartel agents. So down here in Aravaca, if you like to traffic in children, if you're involved in human trafficking or dope smuggling, these individuals have your back. Megan was still in the bar. She went outside and she told them something like, we'd really appreciate it if you didn't come back anymore. And that's when Michael Meyer really started his argument with her and accused her of basically being a cartel shill herself or covering for child sex traffickers and all this. It was scary, Patrick says, but it also made Megan mad which is easy to understand once you understand what the town had already been through. So you mentioned that Arivaca has a history with militias, which is why they have these signs up in the first place. What is Arivaca's history? In 2009, a group of uh, rogue militiamen believed that one man's house in Arivaca was a cartel stash house. And they planned wild as this sounds, to raid the house, steal the drugs they believe were there, sell them, and get the money to buy weapons and help seal off the U.S.-Mexico border. It's somewhat delusional. Wow. But tr tragically, when they went to the house one night, presented themselves as Border Patrol and got in, they found a man and his wife and one of his daughters, a nine-year-old girl named Bersinia. And what they ended up doing was shooting and killing the man, Raul Flores Jr. He was only 29 years old, and his nine-year-old daughter. And they shot his wife, Gina, as well, but she played dead and ended up calling 911 and surviving. We have tape from that 911 call. And I want to warn you, it's disturbing. My aunt, somebody just came in and shot my daughter and my husband. They shot them? What's your? And what's your? And they shot your husband and your daughter. Are they are they out conscious? Please, mom, please, she's bleeding out of her mouth. 
In the end, Patrick says, all they got was jewelry. There were no drugs. There were no weapons. Gina, the mother, survived, but her husband and their nine-year-old daughter were dead. The people who did that raid, two of them are on death row, and one of them serving life sentence. That family changed forever. So did Erivaka. It's less than a decade later, in a community so small, when a child's murdered, when militia started showing up again, mm. those wounds hadn't healed. So that was the backstory when, in 2018, Megan was working at the cantina. And Michael Meyer and his veterans on patrol militia walked into the bar. Tell me about Michael Meyer. His past is sort of patchy. He had started Veterans on Patrol initially saying that it was going to be a group that helped homeless veterans. He is not a veteran. The leader of Veterans on Patrol is not a veteran and does not claim to be one. He never served in the military. How does a non-veteran get to become the leader of something called Veterans on Patrol? By just saying I'm the leader of a group called Veterans on Patrol, because that group certainly wasn't at that time registered anywhere as a nonprofit or a charity or anything like that. Huh. Okay, it says a lot about the group. Okay. Right. I mean, when I say it's a vigilante group, it really is. So first, there were the sex trafficking allegations in 2009 that led to the murder of a father and daughter. And they surfaced again with Meyer in 2018. So I asked Patrick if there was any evidence that pointed to sex trafficking at all. Tell me about these claims of child sex trafficking. Where did the allegations come from? Were they ever proven? No, there was no evidence of that ever. It was just a thing, I believe, that they knew that they could say about people online because what they were doing was they were going online and marketing themselves to people who live far away from the border as the people who are fighting child sex trafficking. We're going to get every square inch, search every square inch, make sure we don't have any kids being held out here. And fighting the cartels. And like, like we said, we're going to take care of the ones who need taken care of. Not only was there no evidence, I don't, I, I mean, it's just my suspicion that they never believed that was the case. So now the town had a new armed group putting out unproven claims about residents and threatening violence again. Meyer had also gotten in trouble for acting on similar theories before ending up in Arivaca too. He's a very divisive figure, even within the sort of militia patriot movement. He ends up in the Tucson area at an old concrete plant outside of town and claims that there's an underground child sex trafficking dungeon there. The claims got picked up by a few different far-right websites. He claimed to find an abandoned child sex trafficking camp in Santa Cruz River near Valencia Road. But even the conspiracy theorist from InfoWars, Alex Jones, eventually said, these claims aren't credible. And if Alex Jones doesn't believe your conspiracy theory, then you're doing something wrong in the conspiracy theory realm. In response, Tucson police say it was just an abandoned homeless camp. And now Megan was left wondering what Meyer was going to do in her town. They soon found out. 
he and, and people in his group spent a very long time going around and draining the water barrels that humanitarians leave out for migrants in the desert. Those barrels are quite literally life-saving in many cases. There are corridors in the desert that are so lengthy and, and dry that it would be impossible to even carry enough water to survive. Later, they would steal a water barrel here and there. And the group became somewhat more militant over time. And the whole time, Patrick was waiting to see what would happen in Aravaca. Would there be a confrontation? Where would this end? There's this sort of uneasy standoff still there. In 2019, Meyer was arrested and charged with two felonies for stealing the water tanks. He was arrested for charges related to damaging water tanks near Three Points. Along with a few misdemeanors for theft and criminal damage. He was later convicted of the misdemeanor and spent a year doing community service. But for Erevaca, there's no real Hollywood ending. Unlike a Western, the big showdown never actually happened there. Some of the militias came through, hung out for a while. One group stayed, but I do remember that the last time I was there, I asked uh, one of the townspeople, is it going to pick back up? And she said, they kind of avoid us and they keep Mm -hmm. to themselves. And uh, I think the lines are pretty well drawn. But according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, for the migrants themselves, things aren't going well. They've reported that Meyer is setting up fake water stations along the border and calling Border Patrol when migrants stop for a drink. And in 2021, more than 600 migrants died trying to cross the border, more than any other year. Meyer still has a following. Many of his videos are still up on the internet, with hundreds and sometimes thousands of views. When you were there, it was Donald Trump. Now it's Joe Biden. Have you seen things change? I think they're using it as a rallying cry. We have a new militia pop-up since then, and they've been going down to the border and trying to make inroads with local Republicans. If you look at the Republican Party right now, the rhetoric about the border and migrants has escalated, somehow grown even more frightening than it was during the Trump years. Texas Governor Greg Abbott issuing a disaster declaration amid this out-of-control border crisis. And so now we have 34 counties on the border who asked me to declare their county a disaster. Listen to former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, who is echoing the tone of far-right extremists when it comes to immigration reform. The anti-American left would love to drown traditional classic Americans with as many people as they can who know nothing of American history, nothing of American tradition, nothing of the rule of law. But the people of Arivaca are still fighting in their way, Patrick says. They offered an alternative message. And I think that that's really important. That that goes down in history, even in, if it's a micro history, as you know, a community that said no to the politics of hate. Yeah. Finally, you are from Texas. You know the U.S. border area well, but it's not the only border that you've reported on. You've reported on the illegal separation wall between Israel and the occupied West Bank. You've reported on migration in southern Europe, living in Greece for a time. Is there something that you've learned looking at this issue from so many places and perspectives? 
I think I've learned a lot. And one of the most important things I've, I've come to feel is that borders are not just places where, where violence happens, as if it's some sort of a coincidence or something like that. I think that when you have a wall or a hard border that is there to stop people who are fleeing, say, a war like the war in Syria, that's violent. You send people back to a much elevated risk of death or something else horrible or losing family or not being able to get safety. It's the most natural thing throughout the, the course of human history for people to cross borders and to move and to look for safety and security and stability in their lives for themselves and for their families. So I've come to really think that hard borders will always have the capacity to attract groups like this and to inspire a really virulent strand of far-right politics and nationalism. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Alexandra Locke, Ruby Zeman, Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, and our engagement producers are Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad. We'll be back.